Since its founding in 1947, the Central Intelligence Agency has operated largely, except with a few exceptions, in the shadows. At the agency's headquarters, visitors and employees see the inscription, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make ye free. Our guest today conducted extensive interviews with nearly every living CIA director and researched others to shed light and speak the truth about how those charged with leading our most important intelligence apparatus guided the agency and influenced US foreign policy. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jim Falk, president of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. And today we have with us Chris Whipple. He's the author of Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shape History and the Future. And I'm so pleased that in the armchair moderating today's program is Laura Young. And as always, let me remind our viewers that I hope you'll go to Dallas's independent bookstore, Interabang Books. Go to interabangbooks.com and type in the code DFWWORLD to get a 10% discount, uh, not just on Spy Matters, Spy Masters rather, mm -hmm. but any books that might be in your shopping cart. But do remember that's only for online purchases. As always, you can catch up on past programs by going to YouTube to our channel, DFW World. And to keep up with our programs, be sure to uh, go to our website at dfwworld.org. So I am very pleased to introduce and welcome somebody probably very familiar to our programs, and that's Laurie Young. Laurie is the Director of Competitive Intelligence at Lone Star Analysis, based right here in Dallas. She has over 30 years of experience in the field of intelligence. So I know that she has read very carefully the book. In fact, Laura, you told me you even listened to it as well. I did. So I suspect that you're gonna uh, probably uh, be pretty tough on Chris. So I'll turn it over to you and everybody enjoy the program. Thanks so much for tuning in tonight. Jim, thank you so much for the kind introduction. I'm tremendously honored to be part of this evening's program. As I told uh, Chris earlier, this is very near and dear to my heart because quite a few of the personalities that he talks about in his book, I actually personally knew. Um, Chris is a New York Times bestselling author and multimedia journalist. He's worked for, written for a variety of publications, including Newsweek, Vanity Fair, and Politico, just to name a few. His most recent book, The Spy Masters, this one, How the CIA Directors Shape History in the Future was recently released. This book gives us an inside look at one of the most significant and influential agencies and their leaders and, and, and historical look as well. As a historian, I really appreciate emphasis placed on historical events. This book provides a chronology of the CIA and the impact on US foreign policy. It talks about the CIA directors and their relationships with the president, which are, are key in order to to aid in the policy making. So Chris, my first question for you is, why did you do this book now? Well, Laurie, first, I'm honored to be with you and thank you. And you're way ahead of me because I haven't listened to the book yet, but <laughs> I'm, glad, uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, why now? I, I've been working on this. It began as a film for Showtime, actually a documentary back in 2015, which I did with the great filmmakers, uh, Jules and Judeon Naudet and Susan Zarinsky, who is now president of CBS News. But I thought the documentary barely scratched the surface of this unbelievable untold story of 17 men and one woman now uh, who have run the world's most powerful intelligence agency since the mid 60s. 
I began with uh, Richard Helms because he was sort of the quintessential CIA director, old school, martini in one hand and cigarette in the other, uh, real James Bond-like character, and brought it all the way up to Gina Haspel. And, and frankly, the answer to your question about why now is I just felt, why not do it? It's just such a great story. I had to write the book. So typically people write books and then turn them into uh, movies. You did this the other way around. Is I'm that smiling. something you like to do? I'm smiling because a friend of mine uh, who used to work at the CIA made this point to me and said, has anybody ever told you that you're doing this backwards? <laughs> uh, and it's true. I mean, I've, I've done this twice now. The Gatekeepers, my book about the White House Chiefs of Staff began as a documentary for Discovery. Uh, and what can I tell you? I mean, my day job used to be as a filmmaker. And so um, I did the documentaries first and then turned them into books. And lately I found uh, a whole new career writing books. So that's just the way it turned out. So you interviewed almost every living director and significant leaders of, of the Central Intelligence Agency. How hard was it to protect against revisionist history when talking to uh, directors through the years? You have to, you just have to have a good filter. You, you, you have to, from experience in, in interviewing uh, these figures, these larger than life characters who are very good at spinning their own narratives. Um, I think that as a journalist and as a, uh, as a writer, you just have to try to talk to everyone you possibly can to, to over-prepare and do much more research than you think you do more than you have to do. And at the end of the day, all you can do is, is use your own judgment and check out everything everyone tells you. And God knows in this field, in the world of intelligence, um, <clears throat> that, uh, that can be a real challenge. But I think there's no substitute just for your own judgment and experience. Who was the who was the most forthcoming and who was the hardest to get information out of? Well, can I also tell you who was the hardest to get? The, yeah. hardest, the hardest to get, without a doubt, was George Tennant. Tennant um, is a, just a Shakespearean character, in, in my view. He was the longest serving CIA director since Alan Dulles. Uh, imagine, if you will, having on your watch as CIA director, the walk up to the attacks of 9-11, 9-11, the aftermath of 9-11 and the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques, the CIA-led invasion of Afghanistan, and all of that just a warm-up for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which will, of course, be George Tenet's, uh, the first paragraph of George's obituary. Um, so, Tenet was the toughest. It's hard to say who was the most forthcoming. Um, it was fascinating to me because so much of so much of what the directors told me depended on their personalities. Depended on you. You go into this thinking, okay, certain stuff is going to be classified that they just can't talk about, and everything else will be fair game. And it's not nearly that simple um, when you're when you're in this realm. It's it sort of depends on if you're a Leon Panetta or a Bob Gates or a George Tenet and nobody is sitting in the room telling you what you can or cannot say, 
nor would you necessarily pay any attention to that person. Um, they are larger than life people who are comfortable in their own skin and make their own decisions. Mike Hayden also, um, I'll give you just a quick example. When I asked David Petraeus about <clears throat> the so-called signature strikes, which are of course very controversial lethal drone strikes mm -hmm. on suspected terrorists whose names are not known, he practically jumped out of the chair. He would not go anywhere near it uh, and said, wouldn't even acknowledge that such a thing existed. Whereas Mike Hayden was an open book. Mike would, Mike Hayden, General Hayden sat there and decided, look, this is out there. It's, it's in the public domain. It's been talked about. I need to explain it. And uh, he didn't ask anybody's permission. He simply went there. So it was fascinating to me to see who would be willing to talk about stuff and who wouldn't. So it's interesting because as former intelligence officials, if they're going to publish, they have to go through a very exhaustive publication review board where pretty much everything they want to say gets blacked out, but they can't control what they say in an interview. Yeah, I, I had no uh, review board and nor was there anyone in the room telling the, the director, former directors what they could or could not say. So that's a big advantage over someone, uh, uh, and it's any intelligence official writing his, writing his or her memoirs. Yeah, so I wanna review, uh, I wanna remind all the viewers that you can submit your questions through the Q&A chat feature, and I will be trying to weave all your questions into my questions so that you can get uh, more information. So how much cooperation did you get for current, from current intelligence officers? <clears throat> Well, you know the old saying, I could tell you, but then- I'd have to kill you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so know that one. More, more cooperation than you might expect. Um, it's, you know, it, 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 it's not easy. It takes a lot of work to get to current people in the CIA and for obvious reasons, uh, they need to be discreet. And for obvious reasons, they're almost always off the record um, or at least not for, not for attribution. Uh, the big disappointment uh, is that I was able to talk to almost every living CIA director, but not Donald Trump's two directors, Mike Pompeo and Gina Haspel. Gina Haspel, yeah. um, Gina Haspel is a fascinating character. She, she's a mystery woman. She flies under the radar. She cut her teeth as a covert operative in the back alleys of Africa, uh, <clears throat> came in from Kentucky, a Johnny Cash fan who, who wound up finding the most unlikely mentor you can imagine at CIA. Jose, Jose Rodriguez. Rodriguez, of all people, who was the architect of the so-called enhanced interrogation program and the black sites, infamous black sites. So she's a fascinating story. And I, I have some untold, un, previously untold stories about her time at that time at that black site and the relationship she struck up with uh, the rapport she struck up with uh, Abu Zubaydah among other Al Qaeda terrorists. So, um, <clears throat> but um, you know, it's it's uh, really unfortunate that neither Pompeo nor Haspel talked to me. That this may sound self-serving on my part, and obviously it is, but I think that the great CIA directors 
the ones who are comfortable in their own skin, uh, the Leon Panettas and the George Tenets uh, and the George H.W. Bushes were not afraid to answer tough questions. And they, and they understood that <clears throat> the director of central intelligence uh, or the Central Intelligence Agency, as we would say today, is not only the honest broker of intelligence for the president, but also for the country uh, and for Congress. And I think it's really unfortunate when CIA directors lose sight of that. So I found it fascinating in your book, your story of, of how Jose Rodriguez mentored Gina and how as a, uh, a very capable and competent operations officer, she was hesitant to think of herself in a, in a more senior role and, and that he had to encourage her to, to go for the chief of station for London, which is a plum position after a lot of other positions. That surprised me. I didn't expect that. Yeah, a totally untold story. Um, this, this relationship that they had, um, Jose just thinks the world of her and uh, took her under his wing she obviously uh, was, was a tremendously capable covert operative and, and rose through the ranks. Um, but when Jose Rodriguez was about to retire, uh, to leaving the CIA, he said to, to Gina, so what are you gonna do? And she said, well, I was thinking about going for station chief. Uh, and he, he said, where? And she said, I was thinking Geneva. And Rodriguez said, Geneva? that's not good enough for you girl you got to go for london that's where that's where you know you'll make your career and she said really you think i could do it and and he said are you kidding me gina you know and so it was one of these just marvelous sort of moments that um that jose revealed to me about about her reticence mm -hmm. to uh to really go for it and he said you know half of these women at cia they just don't they you know they just sell themselves short <laughs> well, it, it is still a little bit of a, of a boys club. And so your mentors, my experience was your mentors are male. Yeah. There still isn't enough of a, of, a, of a group of women that have made their way up the mm -hmm. ladder that you really do have to re rely on, on the men. So I have a question from, from Raymond Termini. In your opinion, Chris, what makes a bad CIA director? Oh, let's count the ways. <laughs> There are many, many ways in which uh, CIA directors burn out. And, I t and there are plenty of stories about uh, CIA directors who failed in the book. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. Probably beginning with James Schlesinger, I would have to, I would have to single him out as one of the early notoriously uh, ineffective directors. He went in with a political ax to grind. He went in uh, under orders from Richard Nixon to just shake the place up and fire 
everybody he could find who wasn't uh, pulling for Richard Nixon. And he famously said at the end of his first day as CIA director to his senior deputies, he said, the CIA, CIA is going to stop blanking Richard Nixon. <laughs> he was sent in there because Nixon, very much like Donald Trump, was convinced that the CIA was uh, a deep state full of liberal enemies hell bent on bringing Nixon down. That was nonsense then. It's nonsense now on Donald Trump's part. Um, as anybody who's worked there knows, the vast majority uh, of CIA employees are trying to do their jobs and trying to ignore whoever happens to be in the Oval Office at any given time and just do either honest analysis, if you're an analyst, or be effective as a covert operative. And, and they don't care who's in the Oval. Um, but Schlesinger was a, a great example of that. I think that, let me answer the question more broadly, and that is, you know, the question of who, who makes a, a great director and who makes a bad one. There's no graduate school for CIA directors. It just says there isn't for White House chiefs of staff. Um, but here's a spoiler alert, and that is the attributes that serve White House chiefs of staff well <clears throat> also serve CIA directors very well. It's no coincidence, in my opinion, that Leon Panetta was the gold standard in both jobs as White House chief of staff and CIA director. And the reason in Panetta's case was that of course he, he knew Capitol Hill, uh, he was comfortable in the corridors of power, he knew his way around the White House. Um, it didn't matter that he didn't know very much about intelligence. That was something he could learn and that was something he could delegate. <clears throat> but he had everybody's backs at CIA and everybody sensed that. And when push came to shove, everybody knew they could count on Leon to protect the CIA. He was comfortable in his own skin. He'd been around the block. He was 70 years old by the time he became CIA director. He said, Chris, if anybody wanted to blank with me, I was perfectly happy to go back to my, my uh, walnut ranch in California and everybody knew it. <clears throat> so I think that those qualities of being grounded, comfortable in your own skin, and most important, being able to walk into the Oval Office, close the door and tell the president what he does not wanna hear. That's a quality great chiefs of staff and great CIA directors share. So it's interesting to me because I find that when you're writing about the former directors, so many of them were at the end of their career this was not anything they ever wanted to do. And they may not, and they didn't even necessarily want to do the job, but yeah. the idea of duty and loyalty and patriotism, how important that was throughout what they, the decisions that they made, I just find that something to be admired. George H.W. Bush was convinced that it would be the end of his political career, that he was a dead man walking when he was asked by Jerry Ford to go and become, he was in China, the People's uh, Envoy to the People's Republic of China, <clears throat> brought back suddenly cable from Henry Kissinger. And I tell this story in the book about how 
he was he and Barbara Bush were convinced this was bad news, and they in fact they thought it was conspiracy by Don Rumsfeld to end Bush's career. That that Rumsfeld had hatched this plot and talked Ford into it, which at the end of the day is not true. If you really want to get into the weeds here, the the real reason that Bush went to CIA was because Elliot Richardson was supposed to go, and Henry Kissinger hated Elliot Richardson, and at the last minute. They put Bush in there. In any event, <clears throat> um, it's one of my favorite chapters in the book because H.W., uh, this is kind of a digression, but it's a good one. Imagine if George H.W. Bush had stayed on as CIA director under Jimmy Carter, which almost happened. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Carter almost asked him, and had he asked him, Bush would have stayed. Yeah. He never would have been on the ticket with uh, Ronald Reagan as vice president. He never would have become president and George W. Bush wouldn't have either. So I have a question from, from Mike Goodman, actually several questions from Mike. So uh, he's asking if it's true that the DCI and the DDCI are the only CIA employees who aren't polygraphed. Oh, wow. That's, that's above my pay grade. Um, <clears throat> I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I, I don't either. I would be shocked if they wouldn't be. Yeah, I'd be surprised. He's also asking the question about when you're interviewing um, people who have access to information that you don't, i.e. classified information, and how do you corroborate what they're telling you if they're telling you something that is on the borderline of classified? You just you just ask everyone around them, <clears throat> everyone in a position to know the same information, uh, the same question. And um, sometimes you just tell them the story uh, and you see if they'll bite and you see if they'll confirm or not confirm or tell you they're gobsmacked that you, knew, that you know that in the first place. Um, <clears throat> I, I think the answer is, Similarly, the answer I gave last time, the, the, the best you can do when you get something like that is simply to run it by other sources who would be in a position to know. It's, and all you can do is do that and use your own best judgment. So do you believe the story of a Woodward getting into Casey's hospital room and getting the quote unquote deathbed confession? Well, that's another great story in the book. I, so I was, I was really amazed when I started talking to the Charlie Allens of this world and all the people who'd been around back in the day when that story took place, um, when, when Woodward published that story. <clears throat> I was stunned at how controversial that still is um, because Charlie Allen and others will tell you it's absolute BS, um, and he used more colorf colorful words, um, to, to insist that it never happened, it couldn't have happened. There was 24-7 security <clears throat> in George Washington Hospital, excuse me, <clears throat> and um, they're just not buying it to this day. And there's something visceral about those denials. They're, they're offended by the idea that Bob Woodward got in there and had this conversation, allegedly. Well, I called up Woodward and uh, talked to him on the phone at length about it. 
And he invited me over to his house and I went over and we sat down and he pulled out a 1980s vintage tape recorder and he started playing and he has this meticulous file filing system with these tiny micro cassettes from the 1970s and 80s, all of his interviews with these people. And he played a bunch of interviews with Bill Casey and interviews with Bill Casey's widow. <clears throat> and um, I came away, I came away convinced um, that it took place. Um, Woodward did 43 interviews with Bill Casey. He was part of it was practically part of the family. They were having breakfast at Casey's house every weekend. Uh, it was part of the entourage. I think he slipped in there <clears throat> and I think he had that interview. But Charlie yes. Allen, just, just one quick footnote on that. Charlie Allen, uh, not Charlie, but it was actually uh, Bill Harlow, George Tenet's um, right-hand guy who has this marvelous wry sense of humor. You may recall that Casey supposedly said, I believed was the last thing he said to Bob Woodward about the, the plot, the Iran-Contra mm -hmm. plot. Well, Harlow insists that what he was actually saying was, I believe we told security to throw your ass out of here. <laughs> yeah, because one of the points that you make in the book was that um, I believe they called Casey Mumbles. Yeah. He was very, <clears throat> very hard to understand, even in the, in the best circumstances. And, and he, uh, he literally used his tie as a napkin when he was eating his meals. Uh, <laughs> he, was, he was not exactly, he, you know, he was not Nancy Reagan's idea of a, of a James <laughs> Bond-like spy. Um, and of course, he wanted to be Secretary of State. Uh, Nancy, who was famously the personnel director of the Reagan White House, nixed that. And uh, that's how he became CIA director. What about uh, Ted Thor Theodore Thornson? Now his nomination <clears throat> got sidetracked. How do you yeah. think he would have been in as a as a director? I think it was a hopeless case, uh, a terrible match, a bad idea. And if Sorensen had thought hard enough about it before he went through that ugly, unsuccessful confirmation battle, I think Sorensen would have withdrawn and, and probably should have. Um, because it's just not, you know, what happened is, as some people may be old enough to recall, but a lot of people have forgotten, it was revealed that Sorensen had been a conscientious objector during the Korean War. Mm -hmm. um, this was brought to uh, Ham Jordan's attention, and then Jimmy Carter's attention, and all hell broke loose, <clears throat> and people at CIA said, I think quite rightly, that um, you know, it's, it would be very hard for somebody with Sorensen's uh, moral principles and his history as a conscientious objector to send covert operatives into, in, in effect, into battle. Um, this this just would have been a non-starter at CIA, and and Sorensen made no bones about the fact that he disapproved of covert operations. Period. I don't know how you can be CIA director if you feel, not that there's anything wrong with those moral principles, but I don't see how you can be CIA director uh, if that's where you're coming from. Well, there are different tools that you have in your tool belt and you shouldn't limit what tools you have. Obviously they need to be legal, which one of the points you made in your book was the, the continued debate about enhanced 
um, interrogation techniques yeah. and how to some it's torture, to some it's, it's necessary. There still is the controversy over whether or not it ever provided intelligence or prevented attacks. You have yeah. people who swear it did and you have people who swear it didn't do anything. How yeah. do you come down on that? Well, the way I come down on that is I'm, I'm with Mike Hayden on this one. When Hayden said to me, um, it's a famous quote now, but he said it to me first for our documentary and it's also in the book. Uh, that if any president wants to uh, wants the agency to do waterboarding again, he better bring his own bucket because uh, we're not going down that road again. That's not going to happen again. It, for one thing, it's illegal now uh, under the law. Uh, and for another reason, nobody at the CIA wants to be, you know, we, we know we've seen this movie before, as Bob Yates put it. Uh, it's always the guys in the field who get punished for this stuff, and it's never, never their higher-ups. All of this was, that uh, George Tenet would be quick to point out, was, was authorized from the very top. Mm -hmm. George Bush approved all of these techniques personally. So did the Office of Legal Counsel, so did the Attorney General. Um, but um, I think Mike Morrell is fascinating on this subject because... Obviously, regardless of my own feelings about it, and I think, I, I think it's wrong, I think enhanced interrogation techniques should not be used, but my feelings are not important. What was important to me was to get a sense from the directors on whose watch it happened, beginning with George Tennant. And Morell, Mike Morell is interesting because he's hardly an arch conservative or a right winger, but, but Morell will tell you that he said, it's one thing to say that the U United States of America, considering the, the principles for which it stands, should never engage in this. But it's another thing to argue that it never produced actionable intelligence. Morrell is convinced that in all 20 cases, without getting into the weeds, but all 20 cases that were cited in the Senate Majority Report, which was scathing, in all 20 cases, plots were disrupted and lives were saved. Actionable intelligence was produced. And that's, that's morale. That's not Tenet. That's not Jose Rodriguez. Um, so the jury is still out. <clears throat> and John Brennan, of course, his argument always was, well, <clears throat> it's impossible to prove one way or the other, because in some cases, um, enhanced interrogation was used before the other legal techniques. And so we'll never know for sure what they produce. Well, one of the stories is they believe that um, under enhanced interrogation, I think it was, <clears throat> it might've been Muhammad, Sheikh Muhammad, I'm not sure, but someone gave up the name of, it was a thread to pull. It was the very yeah. first thread that actually led us to bin Laden eventually. And Khalid Sheikh Muhammad was overheard uh, because the, the place was wired for sound. He was overheard telling some of the other uh, detainees, don't talk about the courier. <clears throat> and this was after enhanced interrogation. Right? Yeah, and that took a while to get there, but that was the first, the first tip. What surprised you the most in doing your, your research? I guess, you know, this is not the sexiest answer probably to that question. Um, and, and there's a lot of very um, sexy stuff in the book, if, 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 as I'll, is one way of putting it. But 
I guess it's the extent to which that relationship between the CIA director and the president is all important. Um, and maybe I was particularly sensitive to that having done a book on the White House Chiefs of Staff where obviously that was critical. But I, I believe it. I really believe as Bob Gates said to me that you've got one client, you've got one customer and um, if you screw that, if you, if you mess that up, you're screwed. Uh, the CIA director has this almost impossible balancing act where you've got to tell the president hard truths while also having his ear. <clears throat> you can run, you command, you know, an army of analysts, covert operatives, uh, paramilitary warriors and lethal drones, but the whole enterprise is for naught if you don't have a seat at the table with the president of the United States, if you don't, uh, if you can't be involved in history making decisions. So that to me was, was surprising, uh, the extent to which that is true. And lots, and of course, lots of other things in, in the book as well. Um, there's, there's a phenomenal uh, untold story about the biggest manhunt in CIA history for Imad Magnia, the uh, operations chief of Hezbollah, who was for decades uh, the most diabolical, uh, crafty, elusive terrorist on the planet. And <clears throat> I have a whole story about how they almost got him on Bill Clinton's watch mm -hmm. uh, and how that whole covert operation went south uh, in Beirut and uh, he got away uh, only to finally uh, meet his demise 10 years later in uh, Damascus. And I have new details on that unbelievable um, operation that finally uh, finally took him down. So I think I, I think the book is full of surprises. So you have a you you talk about during um, President Clinton's watch, there were multiple opportunities to get Bin Laden, um, and and some of the reasons why they didn't do it was there was a, a whole lot of collateral damage potential, and they didn't they couldn't really get the legal act together. Yeah. What, what's your thinking about that? Well, on, your, on the last point, if you, if you talk to people like Kofor Black, um, who is uh, a marvelous character and, and obviously was, um, <clears throat> was head of the counterterrorism center on 9-11, um, Kofor spent a lot of time trying to get Bin Laden and, and was frustrated by, you know, Janet Reno, uh, the attorney general would say, well, um, you can't kill him uh, you, you can only kill him in the context of a capture operation, you know, that kind of thing. They had to capture him, and that just wasn't feasible without, without mounting uh, a full-scale invasion of Afghanistan virtually, um, as they ultimately did after 9-11. So it took a while under the Clinton administration, but by all accounts, uh, in the last couple of years, Clinton really wanted bin Laden dead. Um, the Clinton administration got it by, by the end. And Sandy Berger in particular and, and others uh, really, really wanted to get him. Uh, when the Bush administration came in, 
I, there was a whole different mindset. Um, they did not take Al-Qaeda seriously, would not take it seriously. And I have the blow-by-blow -blow account of the summer of 2001 when the CIA uh, went in on July 10, this, this pivotal meeting where they went in and Kofor Black pounded his fist on the table and said, we've got to go on a war footing now. An attack is imminent. Rich Blee spoke to me on the record for the book uh, for the first time. Rich Blee was head of the Al-Qaeda unit. Um, they warned the Bush White House in no uncertain terms and Bush White, White House didn't want to hear about it. Uh, they were trapped in a 70s kind of mindset, 70s and 80s mindset of, uh, you know, uh, terrorists were Euro lefties who drank champagne at night and blew stuff up during the day. They just couldn't believe that a bunch of guys in caves in Afghanistan were about to kill thousands of Americans. So the interesting thing to me is, and I know that summer there were repeated warnings and, and you know, all the networks were screaming that something was coming. What did they tell you about, you can warn as much as you wanna warn, but if you don't have specifics, how can, as the Intel community, as the president of the United States, what can you do? Well, here's the answer to that question, which I finally, I, I figured out to my satisfaction for the book, and at least in my own humble opinion. Um, and, 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 and I did go much deeper uh, than we did in the documentary on this. The answer, it seems to me, may well have been calling a principles meeting. That if, this is what Dick Clark was demanding a principles meeting even before July of 2001. <clears throat> On July 10, 2001, in my opinion, all Condi Rice had to do, and she was the one at the table when they were presenting this warning, was convene a principles meeting. When you get the heads of those departments, FBI, CIA, and others around a table uh, and you shake the trees, stuff usually falls out. Um, I talked to a lot of people who were there at the time who were convinced that had that happened, in all likelihood, the identities of the two Al-Qaeda hijackers who had been on US soil for two to three months prior would have been revealed and FBI would have had to go out and get them, round them up. It didn't happen because there was no process, there was no principles meeting. Um, and that makes a lot of sense to me. So the CIA claims that they gave the names of those two to the FBI and nothing happened. What did people tell you about that? Well, they still say, they still insist that that's the case to this day. Um, and Cover Black is one of them who says he personally um, gave that order to, to give the names to, uh, to the FBI. It's, a, it's, it's something that will never be resolved because uh, FBI denies it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the things that's obviously happened since then is that and the whole point of the reorganization in 2005 was to try to break down the walls of communication between FBI and CIA. And so communication is better now than it was. <clears throat> but as I say, in, in, in my view, a principals meeting might very well have, uh, have shaken those guys loose. And, and now fast forward 20 years to January of 2020, we have a president who has declared war on process. We have a president who thinks he can govern by whim. Uh, 
Uh, we have somebody who presided over the <clears throat> dismantling of the pandemic unit uh, in the NSC, um, who, and, and I think that um, that's one of the reasons that we are suffering the catastrophic consequences of a lethal pandemic in which 215,000 Americans are now dead uh, because we have a president <clears throat> who does not care about process or about these kinds of, uh, these kinds of procedures. Um, so here we are again. So as a result of 9-11 and the, the, they call it a big, huge, massive intelligence failure, the, the director of national, <laughs> Directorate of National Intelligence was formed. Yeah. Um, another layer to make sure that all the intel agencies talk to each other, collaborate and share information. In your opinion, has that been successful? Can I just say, before I address that, that um, you're right. 9-11 was called an intelligence failure. In my view, it was not. Uh, you know, there's an age-old lament out at Langley, and it is, in this town, there are only policy successes and intelligence failures. Another former CIA director told me that you could never abolish the CIA because then presidents would have no one to blame. Um, so the, um, the DNI was created, as you say, in 2005, because Congress felt compelled to do something. And clearly, as I mentioned before, communication needed to be improved. The idea was that the DNI would coordinate all 17 intelligence agencies and leave the CIA director to run the CIA which sounds like a good idea, but in the beginning, it was, it was really a disaster. Um, you know, the DNI was uh, greeted like a Visigoth at the gates uh, at Langley. Um, <clears throat> and, um, you know, uh, it was a real problem. I think eventually it finally started to work um, with Jim Clapper. I mean, Negroponte was, was a very effective DNI, I think, because he was, he was politically skillful and he didn't try to step all over the CIA. But I think that under Clapper, with, when Jim Clapper became DNI and John Brennan was CIA director, they finally had a, a team that, that really clicked. And um, I was lucky because my, they were both at my launch, my virtual launch party. I was honored that they joined me. And I was starting to criticize the whole setup of the DNI and the uh, DCIA, and they both pounced on me uh, <clears throat> and insisted that it had really worked and that John Brennan could never, as he put it, he said, I was, uh, I was killing myself working 24-7 running the CIA. I never could have done it without Clapper taking care of the other agencies. So I think it, I think it makes sense. But everything depends on who, who you've got in those jobs. Yeah, because unfortunately it can just be another layer yeah. and more bureaucracy and not make things more efficient or make communication more efficient. In the beginning, it just muddled lines of authority and confused everybody. Um, and now, of course, we have another problem, um, which is that in the office of DNI, uh, the, 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 the current occupant is a partisan sycophants for Donald Trump. Um, <clears throat> Trump, um, there's no Trump falsehood that he will not repeat as though it were fact. 
and he's he's even get, gotten to the point where he's spreading Russian dis disinformation, um, suggesting that the, the Russian assault on the 2016 election was some sort of Hillary Clinton fantasy. So it's um, you know that's another more serious problem. So think going back to different tools in the toolbox, is rendition is rendition still practiced? Not as far as I know, um, but I can't tell you that with with any certainty. Most people seem to think that it began with with George W. Bush, and it didn't. I mean, it was certainly it was certainly used in the Clinton administration. It was certainly happening at CIA in those days. Um, I think at this point <clears throat> it's become so much more trouble than it's worth. The CIA isn't doing it, but I could be wrong about that. I can't say for certain. There are quite a few uh, former agency employees who can't travel to Europe, I understand, or they will be arrested if they're caught. Um, so going way back into history, did Truman actually say he wished he'd never authorized the chartering of the CIA? That's a good question. I, I don't recall, I don't recall coming across that myself uh, in, in my research. I, I think Truman for sure had mixed, <laughs> mixed feelings about the CIA and, um, uh, and, and, and it was a, a love-hate relationship uh, for sure. But, um, but that one I don't know the answer to. So I'm jumping all over the place. So who had the best relationship with the president? Well, I would say that Bob Gates and George H.W. Bush as CIA director and president respectively um, had a very smooth working relationship and, and thank goodness because that was the whole period when the Soviet Union was uh, dissolving and it was a, obviously a, a, those, were, those were dangerous shoals that they had to navigate along with Jim Baker and Brent Scowcroft. That was a great relationship, I think. I think Panetta and, and Barack Obama was a very good relationship. Clearly, Brennan and Obama was a very good relationship. Um, there have been others. I think George Tenet really hit it off with George W. Bush. Uh, of course, the possible downside, many critics would say, was that um, if you get too friendly with the president, that um, you can end up with uh, something like WMDs. Um, <clears throat> I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not sure that was the case with with George Tenet, but there's certainly a lot of people at CIA at the time who thought that the Tenet was too eager to please George W. Bush. And so, that, how did Bob Gates react when you asked the uh, politicization of intelligence question to him? Well. Um, he answered it very candidly, I thought. Um, that, of course, was the big criticism of Bob Gates when he was uh, deputy to Bill Casey. Uh, the rap on Bob Gates, who, as many of your uh, viewers will know, was a, just a razor sharp, uh, suffer no fools analyst, <clears throat> rose through the ranks, became Casey's right hand man. Casey was a guy who, as Gates put it to me, 
was in contempt of Congress every day <laughs> tenure as CIA director. He had no use for Congress. He didn't believe in congressional oversight, which had been the law for quite a while at that point. He thought they were a bunch of gnats, you know, nipping at his ankles. Um, and so when you are deputy to a guy like that, um, who was also convinced, Casey was, that every time something bad happened in the world that the Soviets were behind it. Um, Casey was convinced that, um, you know, the, the attempted assassination of the Pope was uh, the fault of the Soviets and Gates was accused of having uh, skewed intelligence to prove that. Gates was quite candid with me about it and, and uh, I think, and, and said that um, he denied that particular case um, but I think, I think that Gates was such a, as I said before, suffer no fools, tough analyst that a lot of people, a lot of people thought he was politicizing intelligence, um, when he wasn't really, I mean, I think that's Mike Morell's view is that he was a very, very tough, uh, taskmaster, um, but that he, he didn't really do Casey's bidding. Um, so I, 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 give him, I give him the benefit of the doubt there. Yeah, um, the Bob Gates that I interacted with had a very good way of asking the one question the analyst didn't want asked. Yeah. He would hone in on that like, like a laser focus. It was amazing, it was a brilliant analyst. Bruce, Bruce Rydell, um, who's you know, a legendary CIA analyst, uh, Middle Eastern expert, um, who, who, uh, whom I quote extensively in the book, told me a story about a, a time when he produced a, an assessment that he knew was going to piss off um, <clears throat> Bill Casey. And Gates came down and sat down with Rydell and grilled him mercilessly. And when Rydell answered all his questions, he said, okay, we'll send it to the boss. Um, he felt that he was an honest broker. So Gates was the super analyst at the top of the agency. Gene is the super spy at the top of the agency. Which is better for the agency? I don't think there's, I don't think you can, there, there's no formula. There's no, there's no hard and fast rule. Uh, there have been covert operatives who have risen to the top. I can think of only three actually Richard Helms, Bill Colby, and Gina. Mm -hmm. um, all three, every, each one of them absolutely fascinating. I mean, we've talked about Helms. I thought Colby was sort of like the, the uh, oh, I don't know. He was the Michael Corleone of the CIA in my view. He was, he, he didn't set out to become head of the CIA. He was un, an unlikely CIA director. He was a liberal. Uh, he believed in transparency. He carried a copy of the Constitution around in his pocket, which, which, and when he decided to release the so-called family jewels, that 693-page compendium of skullduggery and assassination plots and everything else, he was, uh, he was uh, considered a pariah by the old guard. Anyway, fascinating story, and including his mysterious death at the age of 76 when he went out canoeing one night and never came back. There um, are people that believe that, that, that he was not, uh, it wasn't an accidental death. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> um, 
So again, there have been, I would say, you know, Helms was, was successful to a point um, as a covert operative who rose to the top. Um, and um, of course, Helms is, Helms did a lot of, he was no angel. And as his, I, one of the great privileges was interviewing his widow, Cynthia Helms, who died last summer, sadly, but um, at the age of 95. But I spent some time with her the summer before and uh, she was full of amazing untold stories. One of them, she said, she said to me, you know, Chris, they were all asked to do things they shouldn't do. Um, and Helms did a lot of stuff that crossed the line legally for, uh, for LBJ. But at the end of the day, when the crunch really came and Richard Nixon tried to enlist him in the Watergate cover-up, he faced Nixon down, arguably sank Nixon's presidency and mm -hmm. saved the CIA. What now, about... Analysts, uh, you know, some, and, and again, analysts have also um, succeeded and failed. So I, I don't think there's a formula for uh, whether one succeeds uh, more than the other. Who, in your opinion, has been the best director? Well, <clears throat> it, it's, it's hard to say for certain, but let me come at it in a slightly different way. I would say the two, the two most popular directors in the modern era were George Tennant and Leon Panetta. They were both gregarious uh, bears. Uh, you know, they were they were people who everybody felt um, had had their backs at CIA and were very effective. Now, in George's case, of course, his his tragic flaw was probably getting uh, too close to W and um, and signing off on that assessment of Iraq's WMDs. Uh, in Panetta's case, um, he had the bin Laden operation. Um, Panetta would be on the short list of successful directors without a doubt. I'd have to put Helms on that list. I'd have to put Bill Gates on that list. I'd put uh, Bill Webster on the list. We haven't talked about him, but he mm -hmm. was somebody who, the only FBI director who, and a, and a former judge who, who became CIA director and everybody was, everybody looked askance, especially the covert operatives were, were afraid that uh, Webster would come in and clip their wings. Um, but he really was the right man at the right time for the CIA. And so was George H.W. Bush. I, that would be my short list. Well, and, and, and George H.W. Bush, his style appealed to the people so that the two Georges, George Bush, George H. and, and George Tennant were beloved by the employees. They Absolutely. really felt that they had the support and that they always had their backs. And when George H.W. Bush was, uh, was ill toward the end of his life, and when he would come to visit Langley, they would say, Elvis is in the building. <laughs> what about if, if you could design the CIA from, from, an, from your historical perspective, from what you know now, what would you change about the current mm -hmm. CIA the institution, not the personalities. Well, I would I would not be so bold as to attempt to do any such thing, or 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 think that anybody should pay attention to my opinion on that. But having said that, I mean, I think the big unresolved question, one of the huge questions, is really to what extent 
has the CIA become a paramilitary killing machine at the expense of its original mission, which was intelligence gathering. Drones. I think, I think that every director struggles with that question. Um, when, when David Petraeus was, was nominated as CIA director, he made a tour of the former directors and Mike Hayden took him aside and said, David, CIA has never been more like the OSS than it is today, but it's not the OSS. It's supposed to be an intelligence gathering organization. Uh, <clears throat> and um, I think that, so they all struggle with that. And it's a kind of a, to use that old cliche, it's a battle for the soul of the agency. Um, you know, how much of it is Barack Obama and um, Panetta and Brennan wrestled with this. Uh, Obama, of course, you know, famously gave a speech about, about it and, and, and wanted to try to move all the lethal drone operations out of CIA and into, into defense. Um, that's something that nobody really likes to talk about very much, but um, on Obama's watch, lethal drone strikes increased dramatically mm -hmm. with Panetta. And, and one of the great stories, I, I, I really try in this book to humanize the directors. Uh, and to me, one of the most poignant stories is how the extent to which Leon Panetta had no idea that he would be making life and death decisions every day. And I tell the story about how he's standing at, in Arlington Cemetery at the funeral uh, of a young woman named Elizabeth Hansen, mm -hmm. uh, who'd been killed in a suicide bombing in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, standing at her graveside, he gets word from the operations center that they have in the crosshairs of a drone over Pakistan, a top Al-Qaeda terrorist who's planning attacks against the US. And Panetta told me about how there were innocents in the shot, as he put it. There were civilians that could very well be in harm's way. And Panetta wrestled with this and he's a devout Catholic. And he told me about how he was fingering his rosary beads and saying Hail Marys. And the decision he called the White House, they said, this is on you, Leon. He had to make the decision and he decided to green light the strike and innocents were killed. But as Leon put it to me, we got them. And he said, you know, Chris, at the end of the day, all you can do is hope that God agrees with you. So we have one more minute for any yeah. additional questions. I think Jim's popping in. Well, and I really can't think of a, a, a more compelling way to end, end your conversation. And uh, you've certainly piqued my interest. I cannot wait to read this book. Um, it really just underscores the important work and the challenges that the men and women we can now say men and women who have served as directors. So Chris, thanks so much for being our guest. Thanks for writing this book. Laurie, as always, wonderful to Zoom with you. And let me <laughs> remind you. again, all of our viewers and members that you can support the World Affairs Council by texting uh, DFW uh, World to 44321. I hope you'll consider supporting our programs. And if you'd like to sponsor a program like this, just give me a call or send me an email. We would certainly appreciate your support.